This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we begin, an important note. The story you're about to hear is Safraz Khan's version of events. Safraz's former partner and Amina's mother, Hamadar, was not reachable for comment. All of us, at one point or another, have experienced that sudden, unsettling sensation that something is off. A creeping sense of dread, which tells us that all is not right with the world. An inkling that we can't entirely explain, but nevertheless, we're incapable of shaking. We tell ourselves we're being silly, paranoid. We try and push the feeling away. But sometimes that instinct is right. In late August 2011, after Dr. Safraz Khan had dropped off his six-year-old daughter, Amina, at his mother-in-law's house in South London, his stomach began tying itself in knots. Parting ways with his little girl, a regular occurrence since his recent separation from her mother, Hummer, was never easy. But something about this goodbye felt particularly charged. I wasn't eating properly, I wasn't sleeping, I was really anxious because, you know, your body sends some warning signals or some signs that, you know, predictive signs, and I was suffering a lot of anxiety. I just knew something was not right. When Safraz returned to collect Armina, he waited outside as normal. 10, 20, 30 minutes passed. This wasn't unusual. Timekeeping wasn't exactly Hummer's strong point. Fed up, Safraz eventually got out of the car, crossed the road and knocked on the door. No one answered and no one ever would. That was over a decade ago and Safraz hasn't seen his daughter since. Amina had been abducted and taken abroad by his ex-wife. This is The Missing, Amina Khan. Safraz Khan was born in Oxfordshire and grew up in London. His mother and father had moved to London from Pakistan. My parents came here because my father was um, 
an engineer, so there was a shortage of skilled labor. And then when he came, he brought his, obviously, his wife and uh, myself and my siblings. Today, Safraz has a doctorate in medicinal chemistry and works primarily in research and development. But the path to get there was far from easy. In the sort of 70s and, and 80s, when, you know, things were completely different, we lived in an estate where predominantly, you know, we were the only sort of Pakistani family. You know, we were, you know, we had Irish families. We had, you know, English families. We had um, uh, African families, uh, you know, Jamaica, West Indian families. You know, there weren't many Asian people that we interacted on on stick. The landscape was different. There was a lot of racism. Yeah, the National Front back in the days, but sometimes rough as well. But you know, my mom, she she kept us in in check, literally. She really was uh, quite strict and rigid and, you know, we couldn't go out here and there and, you know, we didn't drink alcohol, we didn't smoke and, you know, a lot of that was going on the, on the estate and we could have done anything we really wanted to, to be honest. But I was scared of my mum more than my dad, to be honest. I think my mum, she really, she wasn't educated, but she, she was striving hard to get us focused on things that would help us in life, like trying to get an education. And she, she was, you know, effectively illiterate. She couldn't read and write. When it came to schoolwork, Safraz wasn't a naturally gifted student, but he worked hard. And eventually, after doing his undergrad in applied sciences in Greenwich, he entered a doctorate programme at the University of London. So I did my, my PhD, completed it, and was wondering what I was going to do. Do I go into industry, start working or do um, additional research? And I had an interest to go to Japan. So I, I managed to get a postdoc position and I was at Tohoku University for several years. Living in the Far East was an eye-opening experience for Safraz. He embraced the culture, the food and the people. He even fell in love. And, you know, yeah, I'm a Muslim and, you know, you're not allowed to have relationships and all that. It's all taboo. But, you know, sometimes you you, you, you meet some nice people. And, and, and I met a very nice person in, in Japan. And I probably could have ended up marrying her. But I think my parents would have, my mom would have objected. My sister, my family weren't very open-minded and a bit narrow-minded and on, on things like that. And it would just wouldn't accept anybody from maybe from a different culture, um, to be honest. Eventually... Safraz made the decision to return to the UK, at which point his family strongly suggested it was time to settle down. My mum said, look, you know, you need to get married now. And before long, Safraz found himself contemplating an arranged marriage. It's not forced on you, and I know it does happen in many, but for me, my parents said, look, you know, I'm trying to get you married. I'm just looking at contacts in the local community and who's uh, doing the marriage activities. And so I, I with my mom and with my and on my own, I probably saw lots of women. And it was where you just have maybe a first family introduction or you go and meet the you know the person on your own and then you just basically sound each other out. When I was looking, I just found I found it hard, really, to be honest, to 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 connect with a lot of these women. And then after seeing like 90 girls and stuff like that <laughs> on my on my own or with my mum, there wasn't really much, many, many, many opportunities left. Generally, you find one person that you like and you spend at least anywhere from, you know, six to 12 months to organise the wedding, get all the family, you know, available for the wedding dates. And because we have like two or three events, my, what I was doing was I was dreaming about the, you know, this relationship I had in Japan and was looking for that in my own community, looking for that kind of uh, person, those attributes uh, and person that, you know, and I couldn't find it literally because everybody's different, right? And that's what delayed the process. Then, after more than two years of searching, Safraz met Hamadar, a medical doctor in training. But I then met her when we, we I think we went out walk in the park and then we went out I took her to Covent Garden went to pizza you know had dinner and 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 then after that I think we kind of like said all right fine let's um let's uh let's you know let, let's let's figure back you know what what, what do you want to do Safraz and Hummer both believed their union had the potential to be a successful one so they decided to get married a year later their daughter Amina was born 
and she lit up both their lives. She was really like a very happy child, playful, she was intelligent. She wasn't one of these babies that were crying and moaning. She, she was quite uh, content. Uh, you know, for me, she was my little princess and I spent a lot of time with her actually. You know, they used to do all the getting up at night and introduce the first bottle. Because I used to take her swimming when she, from the age of six months. And I used to take her to the local leisure centre, which was really nice. She loved swimming from that from that really young age of six months. I mean, she she was always singing and dancing, and generally no issues. You know, she whatever happened between me and Homer, we always tried to shield um, Armina from it. Uh, and today she's a kid, and she doesn't need to be involved in, in you know what happens between adults and in relationships. Sadly. Cracks soon started to appear in Safra's and Hummer's marriage. I think culturally we're two different families. Here I'm independent, you know. Of course I see my family, but I don't want to be every weekend at my mum's house. But it happens in our culture where either the, the boy's family or the girl's family are insistent, you've got to come home every weekend. I didn't want that, right? I wanted to build my relationship with her. Hummer, on the other hand, was a homebody and she wanted to be around her family at all times. Her family were really, really close. It was like in, in where they live in Morden, you've got Hummer's father lives in one house with the mother and and the, and, the, and 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 the siblings, and then next door, literally adjacent, is the other brother of of Hummer's dad. And then across the road, there's another brother, literally once uh, thirty seconds up the road. And then you got the sisters living in and around the houses, and and it was really I didn't realise it was that tight uh, family. Okay, you know, environment, you know, that, that sort of family lifestyle. Every weekend she wanted to go home. Every weekend. And it's, it, just, it just created a lot of issues. Safraz was hoping they could find a middle ground. One that would allow them some privacy from time to time. Away from what he felt were the prying eyes of relatives. That also caused a lot of problems. And... and you know, I wouldn't say I handled it very well. I don't think I did. But I'm the kind of person, you know, I'm either black or white, you know, in a sense that, you know, I'm not wishy-washy or very vague. Uh, that's how I conduct my business. That's how I uh, work and, and deal with things in life, just to be straight up, you know. Safra's and Hummer's different points of view about how to spend their time meant relations between the two of them cooled significantly. But Safraz is keen to stress that any fighting that occurred was purely verbal. There was no violence, no abuse, no, you know, there was no nothing like that. It's just that we just not getting on. It was a shame because, you know, we're both, we look, on paper we look good, on the photograph we look good. But in reality, we just weren't, weren't suited for each other, I don't think. Both Safraz and Hummer worked full-time jobs. As such, they split the household chores and childcare down the middle. But as time went on, and the couple found themselves increasingly at odds, more and more of these duties were being left to Safraz. What was happening was that Homer was going to work in May Day, and she wasn't coming back home. She was going to Morden, which was, I think, was equidistance, I think, or more or less, uh, between the two uh, routes, and she and she wasn't coming home, so. She'd come home on a Friday, Saturday morning, she'd take Armina to her mum's, I'd be at home, come back on Sunday, then on Monday, Tuesday, she'd go back to her mum's, and then I'm literally looking after Armina Monday to Friday, you know, taking her to nursery, getting all her lunches ready. If I didn't cook the food, if I didn't clean the house, if I didn't empty the bins, she wouldn't do it. I could live with the fact if I had to do the cooking and cleaning, go to work and buy the shopping, I could live with that. That's not an issue for me, you know. The issue was the relationship. There was nothing there. I mean, it was just, just nothing. There was no bond. And she was committed to her family, but she wasn't committed to her husband or her child. And I don't think she could see that. The constant bickering created a lot of stress. Safraz knew his marriage was in trouble, but he didn't realise quite how bad things were until one evening when he came across a job application on the laptop he and Hummer shared. I thought she was applying for jobs in Oxfordshire. Unbeknown to me, she'd been communicating with her family and she was applying for jobs in Bermuda. And we were living in Oxford and Armina was a baby, literally a baby. 
and she was going to do a one year or two year exchange program where somebody from Bermuda comes and works in the Oxford Trust and she then goes to Bermuda to work as a doctor and she told her family this she didn't communicate anything she was going to take Armina and I was not even aware of that at all. For Safraz, alarm bells immediately started ringing. He'd stumbled across what appeared to be clear-cut evidence that his wife was planning on leaving the country permanently and taking their daughter with her. Then I'm seeing this application form. And what I did, I didn't challenge him. I didn't cause any arguments. I just wrote to the trust and I said, look, I don't know whether she's told you, but she's married and I'm working in, in, in Oxford and we have a baby. She's a baby. So I don't know how she was possibly contemplating telling me because she didn't tell me that she was then going to take the baby without even informing me about this position. She was second on the, on, on, the, on the list to get the position. And I said, well, and I said, you can offer the job, but then I'm going to obviously not allow my daughter to go to Bermuda, right? Because um, she hasn't, you know, and so I did it discreetly and I said, it's up to you. And then she didn't get the job and she was wondering how and then but she never told me the full details of the position she said oh, i didn't get the, the position and i don't know why and spooked by the bermuda application safraz asked around about hummer's family and what he learned shocked him they had at least two other child abductions my ex-father-in-law's sister they helped her take his sister and the kids out of kenya and moved them over to the uk without the, where the father was at work. So that was one abduction. And there was another one in Pakistan where they, the other brother, I think he was married in second marriage, he also did something similar. And he took the kid and then the wife managed to get the kid back, right? So there were, there's not like it's, this was the first time this, it has happened before. And with that information, I decided, well, I'm not going to lose my daughter. And so Safraz took steps to prevent his daughter's abduction. I was born in the UK. I'm going to be buried in the UK. This is my home. She, they've got international connections. Dubai, um, Bahrain, Canada, um, Pakistan, Kenya, Nero, you know, so really, and I thought, I, I'm never going to find my daughter if she goes. So all I did was I got a prohibited steps order to stop her from taking Armina out of the jurisdiction, which means that I went to court, made an application to say, look, I have concerns that my, my wife will take my daughter overseas and not bring her back. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
In 2008, the couple went their separate ways. Hummer went to stay with her family, and Armina travelled back and forth between the two. This arrangement worked, for a while at least. So it was a Saturday. She turned up at the house. I was giving Armina a bath, you know, and, and she was playing in the bath. And, uh, and um, I was getting changed, and all of a sudden... Homer says, I need to get her ready. So we, we, got, we got her ready. Then what was happening is that her uncle and her, her mum or something turned up at the house. What they did is that they phoned up the police in advance and said it's going to be a breach of the peace. And then there was like a little bit of a scuffle in the house where she's, where I've got Armina and saying, what's happening? What are you doing? Hummer's family attempted to wrestle Armina out of Safraz's arms, but Safraz wasn't going to let her go without a fight. I think she hit me. She hit me with the telephone or something like that, and I she cut the uh, side of my cheek. And I didn't know that, right? Because I was a bit stressed about what she's what she's doing and who's calling and this. And anyway, the, I called the police. But the police that arrived were the ones preemptively phoned by Hummer's family. The police turned up. Hummer quickly took Armina and gave her to her family. They're in the car, and the police were like quite heavy-handed with me. Then I said, look, I've just been assaulted and she's taken the kid out. And then she's called her mother and aunt, uh, mother uh, and her uncle to come and take the, 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 my, my daughter out, out of her home. Armina came back to me. I dropped her off at my mum's. Hummer had gone to the police station. When I was being interviewed by the police, I think they were just like not buying it. That, you know, they thought I was making it all up and they were really on the side of Hummer. And I did, and I said I don't want any charges pressed against Huma because she's my, you know, she's still my wife and she's still my mother of arm and, her, and but they kept me there for ages and I was being really, really grilled by the police, really for a long, long time, as if I was the one that was, you know, the guilty party. In actual fact, I'm the one that got hit, uh, and that's evidenced by the police at the time. But then that was it. So she went back to her house. I was in my house. Then, 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 basically, the, the custody hearing started. Safraz wanted primary custody of Armina, but he knew that it would be an uphill battle. He hired lawyers, prepared the best case he could, and to his complete and utter surprise, he won. It was an extremely shocking... I mean, it wasn't shocking, I think it was a very... At that time, back in 2008... That was a, a verdict which was slightly unheard of, right? Majority of men do not get custody. But I had demonstrated, and it was evidenced by uh, statements from independent uh, organizations like the nurseries and stuff, and that I was the primary carer. And I was maintaining a substantial degree of routine and structure in Armina's life, right? She had a home, she was going to nursery, she had regular activities, regular routine, there was stability. Um, Huma was not providing that, she was very rarely home, that she had really had in very rare interactions with the nursery. We both had to give evidence to the judge. And in the course of that, the thing about going to Bermuda came up. And the, when, when the judge asked Huma, did you make an application to go to Bermuda? She lied. She said, no, I never did. When you lie like that blatantly, and then I produce the emails and all the, all the correspondence, then that's quite a, a significant lie that you were going to take the child out of the jurisdiction and then you're lying to a judge. Safraz was over the moon when the court ruled in his favour. But he wasn't spiteful in victory. He knew that Armina wanted Hummer to be in her life and he wasn't about to get in the way. I tried to be as generous as possible. I, you know, she is the mother. So I offered her three weekends out of four, shared holidays, which I do regret now. That's when all the problems started. You know, as soon as we got the custody, I thought things are going to be better. And then it was, it was just a nightmare. Every pickup and drop-off became a battle and Armina was getting caught in the crossfire. What they would do, they would keep me waiting from six o'clock all the way to seven 
or seventh. They refused to just come out on time. And then I used to wait for an hour quite patiently to get Armina back. And sometimes and I had to call the police because they were just playing silly games and then they would bring her out, bring Armina out distressed and crying. You know, they used to, you know, alienate Armina against me and saying it, you know, and all this. And it, it, it went on. It was, it was really, I suffered so much anxiety having to collect my daughter from Morden because of the games that Homer used to play. These dramatic exchanges were having a detrimental effect on Armina's well-being. They were traumatise her during the handover, right? Oh, you're leaving your mum, you're this, you're that. And just, she used to, my daughter used to come out hysterically crying because the mother was trying to tell her not to go with me. But then what would happen by the time we get home, she would, then she would calm down. Then she was out of that environment and then she was back to normal. Then what was happening during that time, she was starting to suck her lip, you know, which is like an anxiety thing because she's under a lot of pressure, right, from one parent to behave in a certain way and react in a certain way, which is against what, you know, Armina wanted. She just wanted to be happy, right, for both parents. And I tried to keep normalised things as much as possible. I used to take her out everywhere, uh, stimulate her in museums, um, you know, going to Legoland or something like this, family interactions. She never challenged the decision to award me custody. She accepted it. She could have challenged it. She could have appealed. She could have, you know, taken it up further. She wasn't even paying child support. You know, I was doing everything, you know, in, and that's slightly unheard of. Safraz thought long and hard about his next move. On one hand, I'm mixed whether I want to save my marriage, you know, but in, in the end, it, was, it just didn't work. So I, I just said, that's it. And then I started filing for divorce. And, then, you know, this Hummer is, you know, a very strong person. I mean, I, you know, I had to get bailiffs because she wasn't acknowledging it. And, and then it, she wasn't being served. So I remember I, I went to Croydon Airport and I found these bailiffs and they were like really, really big guys, right? And I, and I sat in the car and I said, that's the house. And I remember they walked up to her and I knocked on the door. They gave her this envelope, these really big guys. You know what she did? She just threw it in the middle of the road. <laughs> right. That's how strong she was. Then, one day, Armina said something which startled Safraz. She said, Mama wants to take me away. And I think that Armina had heard a conversation about the abduction. This was in 2010, and it was in 2010 that I wrote to the passport office that I think my daughter's gonna be abducted. In the custody order, it was written that the mother is not allowed to take the child out of the jurisdiction of England and Wales without permission of the father. And if, if the mother does so, then she'll face with, you know, being arrested and whatever. On the 20th of August, 2011, Safraz drove Armina to her grandmother's house. It was the last week of the summer holidays and she was going to spend it with Hummer. I dropped her off and I looked at Armina, gave her a hug. I think she was wearing some sort of pink outfit. And she gave me a hug and she got in her car and that was the last time I ever saw her. When Safraz returned 10 days later to pick her up, Armina didn't come out of the house the agreed-upon time. Safraz was used to this. More mind games, he thought to himself. But when he knocked on the door, nobody answered. He tried Hummer's uncle's house, the family member who lived closest by. But he said he hadn't seen her. I had to call the police. Armina and Hummer weren't in the house. As it turned out, they weren't even in the country. When the police questioned Hummer's family about her whereabouts, they told the authorities that she had taken her daughter for a holiday in Cumbria. So allegedly she's going to Lake District, but she's actually abducted the child to Pakistan. Amina was a victim of what is referred to as parental child abduction. This is when one parent takes their child out of their country of residence without the permission of the other parent. By taking legal action against Hummer, Safraz managed to get access to her and her family's phone records, 
and slowly he managed to piece together the sequence of events that led to Amina's abduction, starting with the documentation she needed to get out of the country. She managed to walk into that, uh, that embassy, get a passport made for a child that's never lived in Pakistan, ever, never been to that country, she's six years old, and without any proof or consent from the other parent. They just went ahead and just did the form, right? Without any checks. And I got an order against the Pakistani embassy from the High Court requesting that information. They point back lied, not only to me and the solicitor, but to the High Court. You know, and this, this takes a lot of time. This is not just something that's calculated. This is like, you know, a mother, desperate mother. This has been properly planned. Hummer had flown from London to Lahore via Qatar. There's a call made from the aunt to the family home, and I suspect that call was to say, yep, yeah, she's arrived safely. Safraz used every legal tool he could think of to find out his ex-wife's exact location, but Hummer's family remained tight-lipped. Even the travel agent was not playing ball. They refused to, to provide the evidence. They refused to provide who came in to buy the tickets. When Safraz got the official confirmation about the Pakistani passports, his heart sank. She went to obviously one of the worst places in the world, which is Pakistan, where so much corruption, so much dishonesty, murders and God knows what. And, you know, at that time, when she, when she abducted Armina, the Taliban were certainly prolific, and you know you have loads of bombings in the in the in the north of Pakistan, and you know bombings in schools and all that stuff, and then you got young girls being attacked by you know and all these sort of things that she took her there, and this is a child that is not native to Pakistan, can't speak the language. Hama herself wasn't a Pakistani citizen, but her family had connections all over the country mainly through her uncle, a powerful man by the name of Dr. Zayed Zahir. Safraz, on the other hand, didn't have friends or family in high places. There wasn't anyone who could put in a call or do him a favour, leaving him relying almost entirely on the UK legal system. When you're dealing with the police and the courts, especially the police, being in the, the, the terrible dire situation they are currently, they didn't view me in the same way they would have viewed a mother or they didn't view it in the same way or pursued it in the same way. And trust me, I tried. I had a one officer called Gary Davison who I used to liaise with. So, I mean, he did his best as much as possible, but there could have been, you know, Huma, I don't even know whether she's on the Interpol uh, uh, alert as a wanted person because... End of the day, I mean, she's taken my daughter away. She's taken her away from her home, from her country. And she's robbed me of all that happiness and all that interaction with her father, with her family, with her friends, with her, with the environment which she's accustomed to, and then taken to Pakistan. I'm sure she's going to have a good time out there, you know, a good life, maybe wealthy, but it's a different culture, different environment. Every time Safraz engaged with the authorities, whether it was the police or the passport office, he knew that people would inevitably make assumptions about his case. Because they think, well, why did she abduct the child? Must be because the father's violent, must be, you know, there's, there's always got to be a reason why if the mother abducts the um, child, right? I'm a man, I just have to deal with it. And that generally is the constant feeling. There's no sympathy or understanding why this man, why this father is trying to pursue the mother and trying to get his daughter back, right? They don't understand that concept, right? And I think that's by and large what it is. And what, you know, statistically, the reality is 80% of abductions are carried out by the women, not by the men. But Safraz knew he couldn't let any of these preconceptions dissuade him. I, I, I started off on my own. I wrote to Iftikhar Chaudhry, which was the Chief Justice at that, at that time. He passed it on to this other Chief Minister, this Chief Justice, um, who dealt with this primary issue of child abduction. You know, I raised it with various MPs. I even wrote to Boris Johnson. I got a response from him. But the wheels of justice turned slowly, and eventually, Safraz decided he needed to take matters into his own hands. He needed to fly to Pakistan. 
and then that's when it started the, the, the painful search for Amina. Safraz was nervous about the trip. It's not my country. I wasn't born there. My parents uh, were born in India. They moved to Pakistan during the partition and whatever family came over. So I didn't have any strong family ties. I didn't have anybody influential. The UK is the only country that I know because that's the only country I've ever lived in. And being on holiday, I think Pakistan maybe a few times, but effectively I'm 100% British. I went to all these places. I was going, you know, in a cab and putting myself at risk, you know, because I generally would stand out like a sore thumb because I'm not native, you know, I'm not, I don't speak, you know, fluent Urdu. Safraz's initial interactions with the Pakistani authorities didn't exactly fill him with confidence. So I was putting myself at risk, going to some really dodgy places, meeting dodgy people and corrupt people and police officers and lawyers. They were asking me for an extortionate amount of money. Safraz was being asked for £5,000 just to have Armina listed as missing in Pakistan. Nearly everywhere he turned, people were trying to extort him. But eventually, the wheel would turn in his favour. I remember that I got a call from some guy saying, I'm a friend of Zahid Zahir. He's a very close friend of mine and I know where your daughter is. Come to me in Islamabad and I'll speak to you. So I went all the way from Lahore to Islamabad and I went with a family friend that's not related to any, any, anyone in my family or anyone that's known to the Dars, just totally an independent guy who came with me. He, felt, he said, no, uh, Safraz, I'll have to come with you because I'm a bit concerned about your safety. The mystery caller turned out to be a lawyer. So we went to this law firm and then through this lawyer, allegedly this one other guy said, yeah, I know Zahid's here and he's a friend of mine and I'll, I'll call him up now in front of you. So when I got to the office, he called him up and said, how are you? And yeah, fine, what's happening? Then he put the phone down and it was him, right? Because I recognised the voice. Then he said, well, what you got to do, you need to give us £10,000. And there was, there was a lawyer, a couple of lawyers, and there was a police officer sitting there having a cup of tea with his gun on his, on his, on his, on his, on his belt, right? And I was thinking, what am I doing sitting here? I left. I got back on the uh, train or the coach. I went straight back to Lahore because I realised that they were just trying to scam me and, you know, the, the uncle was obviously clearly in on it, right? And um, just to make a fool out of me or to scam me out of the money. Every once in a while, Safraz would make contact with someone in the Pakistani police who was willing to help him, without any strings attached. But they'd only get so far before the inevitable happened. Every time I had an officer push in for the case, for the search, doing his job, he got taken off. Because the family were extremely well connected. There were, you know, the doctors are here. He was affiliated with one of the parties over there, you know, campaigning and all that nonsense. Safraz made multiple trips, each time finding himself in increasingly odd situations. I remember going into, uh, he was a former police officer in Karachi, a DIG, who was able to give me Believe it or not, all the flight details, uh, travel documents for the family members coming into Pakistan. I, used to have, I, had, that, well, I had that evidence. Um, I also went to his house in, I think, in Islamabad. And we're talking about a house in which there was his, his the brother-in-law of a really influential foreign minister. And I remember there was armed guards, people on jeeps with guns and stuff, and going into this house, palatial house and seeing all these photographs of Tony Blair and Bush, George Bush, for example, with this foreign minister and, and asking help. Yeah, honestly, this is, this, is, this is crazy reality of this child reduction that I'm in this house and I'm seeing all these photographs of this foreign minister with all these influential people. Every time Safraz hit a wall, he changed tactics. I wrote to every school in Pakistan. I mean, that must have cost me about five, six hundred pounds or so, right? All the envelopes, all the paper, all the <laughs> postage. I wrote to every school. I was so desperate to find my daughter. I sent posters of all the family members, the court orders. There was a, an indication that Amina was at one of the schools. 
it was alleged that she was there, but the school didn't cooperate with me. The police did investigate it. It was a very uh, famous international school. They've got um, sites in the UK and they've got sites over there. But once they knew about the abduction and then what I was asking, they refused to cooperate. Safraz made five trips to Pakistan over the course of several years, but he knew he couldn't carry on like this indefinitely. Um, my wife, current wife, was not happy, you know, because she wasn't. She worked all her hard all her life, and she supported me 100% in this. But it came to a point where I, I had to remortgage the house. I was so much money, and it really affected me. Armina's abduction had far-reaching psychological consequences for Safraz. I had subsequently had a daughter who I really couldn't connect with really well because of the fear of not knowing if she's going to be around and might lose her for whatever reason. And he's tortured himself for years thinking about what he could have done differently. I didn't take stronger action. I should have gone straight to court, back to court. But I didn't. And that... I just didn't react on it. I did the right thing in sending the letter in 2010, but I just didn't respond, take, you know, more uh, prohibitive action. Whilst he was making his trips back and forth to Pakistan, Safraz was in an ongoing legal battle with Hama's family in the UK. He was accusing them of being complicit in Amina's abduction, a case which Safraz lost but he believes that this was largely down to inadequate legal representation. I'll never forget that day because, you know, the barristers and solicitors were doing high fives and were laughing and they were really happy. All, all the sort of circumstantial evidence, there was certainly enough to imply that Huma didn't act alone. It was impossible for her to act alone. She didn't have the bandwidth or the capability to do it. The family members were quite instrumental. After the verdict, which left Safraz with a legal bill in the tens of thousands, he made one last-ditch effort to locate Amina. I then decided to get a secret investigator to investigate the family at that point, because I thought they're going to go to Pakistan and they're going to be really complacent, it's all over. And Huma was seen with the family members. They had gone to Kashmir and Gujarat and all Lahore and all that place, and they were found. So I quickly went to Pakistan. Prior to that, the mother and the Usmandar and Manavadar, the mother, got they got arrested and detained. And they said on their belongings was all of Armina's stuff. All the stuff that they took from, from London was in a bag. They had all of Armina's clothes. They had all of Armina's clothes. They had her toys. They had a DVD that I bought, yeah? All these items. They had a Game, uh, a game Boy toy. They had all of that. And that was it. I thought, that's it. There, we've got them. And then they wrote in a statement that, oh, yeah, they're going to bring back Huma. They're going to tell Huma to come to the police station. This police officer was really doing a good job. Got them to write these statements. Yes, they're going to bring her back. They, you know, they're going to bring her back. And then she can then go to court. And then she can, they, they, can, they can make a court application. And, and, and then they can you know, contest what they need to contest. And then I got there. I remember seeing that his face, Osman Dar's face in the police in the same room. And I got really angry. I felt like, you know, really just getting angry, but I had to contain myself. So then they did a 360 and denied the statement, denied this and denied that. Once again, Hama's family connections were enough to keep them out of any real trouble. I just lost all hope. And then I went into this depression. 2013 to 2015, just really struggled with life in general. In July 2013, Hummer was struck off the medical register in the UK. The General Medical Council ruled that her actions had brought the profession into disrepute. Safraz documented all his efforts to find Amina on a website in the hope that one day she might, out of curiosity, Google herself and learn the truth about her abduction. You know, in these child abductions, there's a thing called parental alienation. When she was six years old, she was a very intelligent, bright child. You know, she's the kind of kid that was reading, writing. She was, you know, singing songs and YouTube and stuff like that. And, or you know, she, she was a smart kid for her age. I don't understand. She's 18 years old. 
what Homer and her family have said and brainwashed her to prevent a child where internet access, mobile phones, internet, all of that is so easily readily available. What they've said to her, you know, to maybe where, you know, you've got natural curiosity to as to where, why, where's my father gone? You know, where, where's my father? And, and ask her questions that maybe she's not, I don't know why she's not answer, you know, figuring out, well, I'm in Pakistan, where's my father? Everybody else has got a father and a mother, where's my father? Or well, why she's not done any self, you know, any discreet investigations herself to reach out to me. I just don't know, and I suspect they probably told him either I'm either dead or I was this, I was that, or God knows what. Unsurprisingly, this whole ordeal has completely undermined Safraz's trust in the legal system. You know, I'd want that to, to say to everyone, the police here, the judge, the courts, I told you I was right all along. They were implicit in this abduction and they knew it right. And I, and I was right from the onset. And that's the reason why I don't, I, I don't think she, she would surface. And if she did, it would probably be... I don't know whether I'm ever going to see her again. That, that's that's the that's the honest truth, really. To be honest, I've lost thinking, I lost faith, and I lost the ability to imagine that scenario now. So, in my eyes, she's gone, and I'm still living with the pain. Twelve years on, believe it or not. Safraz hopes that if Armina ever does learn the truth about how she left the UK, that she knows he did everything in his power. To bring her home, I'd just I'd just say, look, you know, you haven't heard. I haven't been with you for twelve years, and it's not throughout trying. Um, I did everything possible, and I've got the proof for it. I've got a website. I've got all the hundreds and hundreds of sheets of papers and statements and evidence and and that to, to show, and all the press clippings and news articles that I did my best and all the visits to Pakistan that I did my best to try and find you. And I never stopped trying until I knew it was virtually impossible because there was no way that I was going to find my daughter um, without the assistance of the authorities in Pakistan or maybe a disgruntled family friend or associate. But without that, there was no way because it's just it's, it's impossible to find anyone in Pakistan without any sort of substantial amount of money and influence. If I was rich, I could have thrown enough money at it, but I just was not in that position to be able to put, to pay uh, you know, thousands of pounds to people to find my daughter. By the time this podcast goes out, Armina will have turned 18. She'll be an adult, and if she hasn't already perhaps she might start to ask questions about her dad or even, Safra's hopes, try and seek him out herself. It's been 12 years since I last saw her. So trying to disrupt her and disturb her at this point is fruitless. I want her obviously to find her, of course I do, but the time has passed now where I wanted her back in the, in, in the legal sense, in, the, in that sense, because she's 18 years old now. And so that outlook has changed. I certainly would love to have interactions with her, but not with the view of, you know, getting her back to the UK permanently. She's now an adult, you know, she's 18. Uh, she's probably in education. But certainly those people that did the abduction, yeah, I mean, they need to be punished. And that's why I don't think Armina would ever come forward anyway, because I would demand that. She didn't tell me exactly who she interacted with, where she went, who she did. You know, I'd want that. Safraz has two young children. He's told them about Armina, and they're keen to meet their older sister. He remains hopeful that one day that will happen. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Armina, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Armina Khan before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, 
themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. The series is also made with the help of Missing People, a charity who offers support to the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Safraz hopes that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.